0: Ladies and gentlemen.
2: gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Patrick Antonetti. This week, um, going a little different this week, but I think you're going to find it really, really interesting. Our first guest is Garrett Graff. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. I can't recommend it enough. Head to Amazon and check it out. And um, Garrett wrote a book, basically, that expands... His amazing piece from the 15th anniversary of 9/11, where he wrote about uh, all those who were on board Air Force One with President George W. Bush on 9/11, and sort of everything that was going on uh, with a focus on Air Force One that day. And now he's written a book, uh, a full-length book, that tries to capture, you know, as best anybody can, what the national experience was like on 9/11. And it's an oral history of that. Really, really fascinating. We get into how he put the book together, how he did the research why he chose what he chose, uh, a couple of the stories at least that really uh, hit home with me, and at the end, just how sports played into that day as well. So that's Garrett Graff first. They, or he, I should say, is followed by uh, two of my colleagues at The Athletic, Kavitha Davidson and Andres Kelto. They are the co-hosts of The Lead. That is a new daily podcast from The Athletic. It's the first daily podcast for The Athletic. It's basically, they're going to try to sort of Uh, Well, I don't know if you can duplicate the success of the New York Times Daily, they're certainly going to try to approach it with the same philosophy and the the sort of same high end when it comes to storytelling and journalism. And we get into what the lead is and why it exists and what's going to be on that show. And the first episode came out as we're taping this uh, today on Monday, September 16th. It's really good. No company manning here. It's They did an awesome job, and that first episode's about uh, the Saints getting robbed, basically, in last year's NFC Championship game. So, Garrett Graff is first, followed by Kavitha Davidson and Andres Kelto, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Garrett Graff is a former editor of Washingtonian and Political Magazines, and if you are familiar with him, and I imagine you might be if you follow me on Twitter, he's certainly written for many publications, Wired, New York Times, etc. For the purposes of this podcast, his book, The Only Plane in the Sky in Oral History of 9-11 is absolutely fascinating. It stems from a piece that I recommended a couple years ago that he wrote for Politico, I think on the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And uh, it just struck with me uh, for the quality and depth of reporting, the way Garrett presented it. And obviously you know as a new yorker I and mean, doesn't you don't really need to be a new yorker but just a day that nobody i think in america will ever forget and garrett graff joins me today on the sports media podcast garrett i know you don't do a lot of sports podcasts so i appreciate you you're making the time for this one
1: well thank you i um uh, appreciate it and um i have uh, always uh been very appreciative of how supportive you were of the original article.
2: Yeah, Garrett, I'm not asking about the book. Let's talk about Fox and CBS's NFL productions. (laughs)
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. The the, the first and only time in my life I will ever have any contact with sports. So, all right. So to give people a little
2: bit of background, um, I think my chronology is right about this. You published a piece for the 15th anniversary of 9-11 about being aboard Air Force One with the President of the United States, George W. Bush, and at that time, you spoke to 28 of the people who were around the president that day. It ran in political magazine, and it was, it was to me, absolutely one of the most fascinating things I've read. Can you, can you then take me from that piece to, uh, to, to what now exists, and that is your book, The Only Plane in the Sky?
1: Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. So this, this grew out of a piece that I published for the 15th anniversary of 9-11 um, that was about the President's Day that day uh, which people probably roughly remember he starts in sarasota florida in the morning and is uh reading to those elementary school students when word of the attack arrives he's hustled aboard air force one which uh sort of keeps him up in the air for most of the day away from washington until they determine that it's safe for him to come back to the white house goes to Barksdale air force base off at air force base And finally, back to Washington uh, around sort of 4 or 5 p.m. the afternoon of Tuesday, uh, the 11th. And during that sort of final leg, he is the only plane left in the sky over the United States, um, alongside the fighters that are escorting him, uh, as all of the other planes have been grounded. The reaction to that piece uh, was stunning. It was just in a couple of days, it became the most read article in Politico's history. And I got all sorts of letters and uh, responses, um, you know, ultimately dozens that first day, and and by the end of the weekend, um, you know, a a couple hundred, and and you know, as a writer, sort of, anytime you get, like, five emails from readers, you're like, oh, man, like, this thing's really taken off, and so, you know, uh, getting a couple hundred was was really overwhelming, and there were two that really stuck out in my mind. Um, One was a letter from a woman, a mother, uh, a veteran, who had two children, seven and nine at the time. And she wrote how she had printed out my article and set it aside for, so that one day when her kids were old enough to, re, uh, to read it, she would be able to help explain why, her mo- uh, why their mom had left them to go off to war. And then the second was also from another veteran, um, a younger guy, Army, who wrote that he was in middle school on 9-11 and that he had done two, two tours in Afghanistan, one in Iraq, and had never really understood the trauma that the country faced until that day uh, when he read about uh, the day through President Bush's eyes. And those two reactions really stood out for me uh, as I began to realize how we were seeing this transition to a new generation that had no real emotional connection to 9-11 itself, and yet we're living very much with the impact and the consequences of that day. Um, you know, we're sort of, you know, especially when you begin to look at the generation who are now serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, this year, the 18th anniversary marks the first time in American history that we are deploying people to fight in wars that are older than the people who are being sent to war. And so that inspired me to turn that original piece, which just focused on air Force one into a full oral history of the entire day. Um, and this book now, um, with the same title, The Only Plane in the Sky, focuses on the full day, uh, morning to night, coast to coast, uh, and features about 480 Americans as they lived the day. And, uh, you know, not just in the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and Shanksville, but in air traffic control towers in the White House bunker with Vice President Cheney aboard Air Force One with the president on Capitol Hill. And then sort of a host of other unique perspectives. I mean, I talked for the book to um, one of the men who guarded the tomb of the unknown soldier that day and sort of what it was like um, for him as he continued to march and guard the tomb, even watching the Pentagon burn on the horizon. Um, You know, the book opens with the story of Frank Culberson, who was the one... American off the planet Earth that day um, aboard the International Space Station and, and sort of follows his day as he watched 9-11 unfold from space. So the goal is really to get beyond the facts of the day and tell how America lived that day, um, which I, I think is sort of an important distinction in one uh, that led me to that oral history format to to talk to people um, and let them tell the day in their own words.
2: Garrett, the, um, the attempt to capture what the national experience was like uh, on nine 11 is really, really a big task. And you know, certainly better, maybe than anybody that your book, like sort of theoretically, philosophically, it could be 50,000 pages because you could, you could, you could essentially almost interview anybody who um, had a role who was alive or even who wasn't alive because they all have a reflection of it. So it strikes me that the real sort of uh, the challenge for this book is to how do you figure out a narrative um, to make it work, to capture the experience? And how do you probably pare down from the thousands and thousands of thousands of potential sources or voices you have. So what was the blueprint for you? How did you go about doing that?
1: Uh, The book is uh, a a mix of my own interviews and stories that I've collected over these last three years, um, as well as a number of uh, primary source archival oral histories done by various institutions and museums and historians and journalists elsewhere. Um, There was a really... There were a number of institutions after 9-11 who had the good sense to go out and to try to capture some of these stories and understand that, you know, this was history that needed recording. Um, so uh, I, the first step in this project was, um, you know, looking at a lot of those. Um, and, you know, at the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York, the 9-11 Tribute Center in New York, the Pentagon Historian, the Capitol Hill Historian, um, C-SPAN, the uh, StoryCorps and the Library of Congress, uh, the Flight 93 National Memorial in Shanksville, um, a number of other places, the Arlington County Public Library in Virginia. And and all told, I I was working um, through this with uh, um, someone from the 9-11 Museum, an oral historian named Jenny and. Jenny and I found about five thousand uh, oral histories that we uh, began to to sort of try to um, sort through uh, in in various archives across the country. Um, we ended up with a pile that was about two thousand that we collected and, you know read carefully or listened to. And one of the things that was really remarkable is that while a lot of these institutions had had the good sense to go out and collect these stories, um, most of the oral histories had never, you know, been touched or read or listened to basically since the day that they were collected or transcribed. Um, And so, um, you know, we, we actually ended up having to do a lot of the transcribing ourselves of some of these things that had been done, you know, a decade ago. And that, that pile of 2,000, we, you know, sort of sorted through to end up with about the 480 voices in this book, which uh, represent about 400 archival sources, and then about 75 or 80 of my own work and, and stories. Um, and, and you're absolutely right, that sort of part of what is so amazing about that day is it is so inherently dramatic that, um, you know, the, the first draft of this book, you, you know, even with, after all of that whittling down, um, you know, was literally twice the length of the finished book. Um, and, and I'm sure that if, if another journalist or historian sat down with a pile of the 2,000 transcripts that I started with, um, you know, they could write another incredible book, uh, of that day, you know, without a single overlapping quote, um, you know, there, there are so many stories uh, that I didn't include um, in, in so many details that I, I didn't get the chance to include. I mean, um, of those sort of 480 people, there are probably only maybe two or three dozen that you follow throughout the day. Um, you know most of most of the voices in the book sort of come and go just as sort of their own role in the drama and the story of the day unfolds. Um, and you know there are certainly a number of people who appear only once, you know to deliver a, a single fact or a single observation or a single description. Um, and uh, you know there are some absolutely incredible stories. Uh, that I just didn't have any room for at all.
2: Garrett, can you, um, for my listeners, because obviously there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are either uh, writers or broadcasters working digital. How did you, when you have all this kind of um, source material, how do you go about, like literally like the specifics of it, how do you go about um, figuring out a way to put it in some kind of order? Do you have a like a gigantic... Uh, spreadsheet with all the people or all the sources you've talked to, and then a Word doc that you've transcribed or the oral history. Do you use some kind of storyboard in an office? How did you, you know, how were you able to sort of find some clarity to put this project together?
1: Um, uh, it, it's a good question, and it and it this um it, you know this is uh I've written a couple of books now, and sort of every book I finish, I I say. To myself, you know, I don't have any idea how people wrote books before computers. I mean, I just l- sort of literally can't fathom what it was like to write a book before, you know, computers and the Internet, um, both in, in terms of organization and in terms of being able to track down, you know, details and facts that you need to include. Um, I, I've actually, this is the... Um, probably second book, I think I've written, third book, actually, I've written in Scrivener, um, which is a computer program that uh, is, is sort of a mix of a writing program and a database program, and it's uh, it's largely designed for academics, doing academic writing. Um, but I find it just enormously useful for book writing. Um, And I I sort of have uh, a different database for each book. And then, actually, I I have one separate database that is all of my magazine writing over the years because, um, you know, you're able to sort of create these folders that include, you know, interview notes, interview transcripts, articles that are of interest. And all of it ends up being keyword searchable um, which is uh, enormously useful, especially you know as I'm you know probably a decade into using it now and you can sort of be like, you know I vaguely remember someone mentioning that word in some interview I've done at some point over the last decade, and I don't remember who or the context and you can get in and you know search it all um, uh, very easily. And uh, so what I did with this book um, was, you know, I just sat down with the transcripts and, and read them. Um, and, uh, you know, some were in hard copy, some were in Word doc, some were in PDFs, um, and uh, uh, you know, some just exist loose on the internet. And so I would just read every transcript and pull out the quotes that seemed important to me um and then once i had read sort of everything from a uh from a given sort of event or location or time frame then i would sort of sit down and begin to try to organize those quotes into a single story um you know a single chapter Um, And one of the things that, um, you know, we spent a lot of time, um, my editors and I talking in this project with, uh, and you probably sort of struggle with this in in some of your writing and reporting as well, is, you know, how do you translate spoken English into written English, Um, which is sort of particularly challenging in an oral history format, because the you know the way that people speak isn't the same as being able to easily follow something when it's written down. You know, we throw in so many asides and digressions, and you know, correct ourselves mid-sentence, and do all of these sort of verbal ticks that um, you know, it's often very hard. in in magazine writing or book writing to sort of figure out, you know, how how much do you capture the thing that the person actually technically said versus the thing that they were trying to say or the thing that they meant to say. Um, And so we spend a lot of time, you know, uh, pretty carefully sort of editing and tweaking uh, quotes to to make sure that we were capturing the best version of the thing that the person was saying, um, which, you know, was something that we were especially struggling with um, given the subject matter and, you know, the fact that these are people talking about incredibly intense, emotional, uh, traumatic events um, and trying to organize it in such a way that it was actually followable for a reader. Garrett, is there, um,
2: and I'm going to ask you, uh, about a couple of things in the book that really stood out for me. Of course, if you read this book, you know, your what stands out to you is sort of going to be so individualized. Was there any person who you or Jenny wanted for this book that turned you down, turned down an interview for it? Um,
1: so, so actually uh, the, the only person who, um, effectively know is, is the short answer. Um the The only person um, who who actually did turn me down in the interview process uh, was President Bush himself that day. Um, and ultimately um, i I was sort of happy with that both in the original piece in Politico and then happy with that in the book. Um, and, and you'll notice in the book I don't use any. Uh, quotations uh, you know uh, from President Bush, except for sort of contemporaneous quotes that he gave that day. Um, and and i I think that that actually sort of worked from a storytelling perspective in an important way, because I think actually having, President Bush's own thoughts and reflections on that day might have overpowered, you know, the aides and the people around him who I quote, talking about him. And I think he's actually sort of, you, you get a better sense of him and how he experienced his day from watching, you know, his, they refracted through the people around him than I think you actually might have even gotten from, uh, you know, him telling the stories himself.
2: When, um, I guess everybody would be different, but when, for the interviews that you conducted personally, how would you characterize people? How would you characterize um, the people who you spoke with? Were, were they emotional? Were they sober? Uh, how much has distance you think impacted their memory or, and I guess this probably would be my guess, or is everyone sort of different in, their, in, in how they have processed and how they ultimately reflect on 9-11? Um, it,
1: cert- certainly everyone is, is different in the way that they re- reflect on and process that day. Um, I was really sort of struck by a couple of things um, through this project. One is, of, of course, just how vivid that day re, uh, remains for almost everyone who experienced that day. You know, I, I have an incredibly boring personal 9-11 story about you know being at breakfast in college. And yet I can sort of still tell you every fact of that day. And... Uh, And I think that that proved true for nearly everyone that I I spoke with. Um, And, of course, based on, you know, the mix of the 9-11 original uh, primary sources and my own interviews, you know, the interviews in this book stretch from uh, October 2001 up until, you know, April or May of, of this year of 2019. And that... For the most part, people just remember every day or every minute and every detail of that day so vividly. Um, but but you certainly do see sort of some larger themes uh, unfold uh, when you're sort of looking at nine eleven and its memory through, uh, you know, a national lens. Um, and, and one of the things that just was so... Striking to me in writing the book was just how innocent America actually was on the morning of nine eleven. You know, we sort of hear people say, uh, you know, nine eleven changed everything, but we forget just how much it actually changed. And you see, you see that in what to me is the most fascinating moment of nine eleven, which is the 17 minutes from the first crash to the second crash, where from 8.46 in the morning to 9.03 in the morning, you see sort of America writ large and New York specifically react to that first crash with a shrug and sort of everyone says, oh, like that's super weird, you know, must be some sort of problem with the plane or the pilot had a heart attack or air traffic control is having a really bad day. And I I quote, you know, one of the most sort of breathtaking quotes to me in the book is this story of this New York ferry captain um, who watches the first crash from uh, from New York Harbor. And then he continues on and the ferry continues on to Wall Street Terminal there in Lower Manhattan. And every single commuter on the boat gets off and walks into Lower Manhattan, even as papers and envelopes from the impact of that first crash are fluttering down around them as they walk off the boat. And, you know, there wasn't a single person on that ferry that morning who saw that crash and was like, you know what, I think that this just sort of seems like this is going to be a weird day. I'm going to turn around and go home. You know, everyone uh, just defaulted to assuming it was something accidental um, and that it wasn't until that second crash that you began to see how, you know, began to sort of see people react to it as an attack. And, of course, like that's just totally different from the way that America thinks about the, you know, our daily lives. Now you saw, um, you know, you're probably re- remember that video of the motorcycle backfiring in Times Square last month where everybody runs for their lives and we just default now to assuming it's an attack. It's assuming it's terrorism, assuming it's a shooting, um, until proven otherwise.
2: I want to ask you about uh, two specific sort of content things that always stand out to me in the book? Uh, the first one is the um, regarding United Flight United ninety three, and that there are two fighter pilots from the DC Air Force, Air, the DC Air National Guard from Andrews Air Force Base. Mark Sasseville and Heather Penny are the two pilots. And again, correct me if I'm if I'm sort of not describing this correctly. But they eventually are charged with the the potential job of diverting this plane um, from whatever course it's in. Essentially, I guess using their planes to to crash into that plane. Uh, I don't know if you interviewed both of them, but in reading about those fighter pilots and sort of their reflections, knowing that they're basically being told that they're not going to come back, that they're they're on a mission basically to sort of. Um, one, give up probably their lives, but more than that, to, um, to, to, to cost the people on the plane their lives in sacrifice for, obviously, uh, many more people on the ground. And that's, obviously, Garrett, as you know, like it, it, almost an inconceivable choice for sort of human beings to process. And I wonder, again, what, how you sort of process that um, reflection. If you did those interviews personally, I'm sure I'm not the only person to say this, but the, 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 those two always sort of stand out to me on 9-11.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely. And, um, and, and, it, and it's indicative that day of a couple of big things. I mean, it, your, your, your summary is absolutely right. You know, um, uh, uh, Mark Sassville and, and Heather Penny um, uh, are sort of at the Air National Guard base at Andrews Air Force Base in D.C., just outside D.C. that day. Are scrambled into the air um, as the government and the military tries to improvise a response to this unprecedented and and almost unimaginable threat that day. Um, You know the the U.S. government was just really not prepared for an event like this. wasn't prepared for a threat inside the United States. wasn't prepared for the idea that the planes themselves, the hijacked planes themselves could be weapons. And so you you sort of see that confusion and improvisation unfold throughout the day. Um, You know, the first fighters um, in that area uh, scrambled into the air from Langley Air Force Base. They're scrambled into the air. Um, they don't even know what the threat is when they are taking off. Um, So they actually head first straight out to the Atlantic, assuming that they are intercepting incoming Russian nuclear bombers. Um, And, you know, it's only after a few minutes uh, that they are told, you know, no, the threat is already inside the United States, you know, get back to Washington Um, and then Sassville and, uh, and Penny are, are scrambled out of D.C. and uh, Andrews Air Force Base. Um, you know, planes were not kept on the ground armed, and so they go up into the air, um, and other other fighters uh, throughout the country that day are sent up into the air without any weapons. Um, and they're effectively told, um, you know, it, if you encounter a hijacked airliner, Um, you know, you're, you're on a kamikaze mission. You, you are uh, the only weapon that you have is your plane itself. Um, And Heather Penny talks about in, in her oral history, how, um, you know, that they thought about, you know, well, maybe we could aim our plane and then eject at the last minute um, and, and save ourselves. But, they ultimately realized that, you know, they couldn't afford to miss, and so they needed to, um, you know, they, they needed to sacrifice themselves to, um, to take those, those planes down. You know, Sassville and, and Penny, as they are loading themselves into the cockpits, uh, are, are sitting there uh, shouting back and forth, you know, you aim for the cockpit, I'll aim for the tail, And it's an unimaginable moment. It's an unimaginable order. Um, And and it's also that they, you know, a a really interesting example of the difference between the experience that people were having and the impact that people were having. Um, And and that sort of, you see play out specifically in in this order. Um, uh, You know, I talk uh, sort of, uh, before that in the book about the, the shoot down order itself, uh, which Vice President Cheney gives in the White House bunker where he has been rushed. Um, and, and I spoke to Anthony Barnes, who was the director of the White House bunker that day, and was the person running the liaison between the Pentagon and, and Vice President Cheney. And Commander Barnes had never spoken publicly before um, and told me the story in the book of what that day and what that conversation was like and how he went to Cheney and asked for shoot-down authority and that he, had, uh, he, he was a naval aviator himself. He understood just how momentous this order was, and so he repeatedly confirmed the same request and order with Cheney in order to make sure that there was no ambiguity or confusion on, uh, um, between the vice president and the Pentagon. And, and what Cheney and Barnes did not know at that time was that that conversation took place at about 10.12 uh, that morning and that the attacks were actually already over, that the, um, the last plane, Flight 93, had actually already crashed at 10.03. Sassville and Penny, they, their fighters don't take off until actually about 10.30 that morning. So even as they think that they are heading into the air on this kamikaze mission, you know, they don't realize that the attacks are actually already over. And the last of the hijacked planes has already crashed. And to me, that's a really important part of telling this whole day through the oral history format and sort of telling it through the voices of the people who lived it. Because I think the the tendency when we remember 9-11, uh, as history is to t- that we tell ourselves this much neater and cleaner story of what happened that day than it was for actually people who lived it that you know we sort of know the facts that the first crash happened at 8:46 we know the last crash happened at 10:03 we know the whole thing was over within 102 minutes with the collapse of the second tower at 10:29 that morning and that that was not the way that any of us actually lived 9-11, um, you know, whether you were sort of a, a regular American sitting at home watching television, or you were one of these fighter pilots, or you were the president uh, or vice president of the United States that day. I mean, well until that afternoon, people feared additional hijacking. They feared at one point that there were as many as a dozen more hijacked planes in the air. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you remember that as terrible as the final toll of 9-11 ended up, nearly 3,000 Americans dead, the estimates that first day were that there might be 25 or 50,000 casualties. You know, that there might be 1,000 people dead at the Pentagon alone. Um, and, you know, people were sort of doing the math that there were 50,000 people working in each of the towers, 100,000 people total. Um, you know, that, that, you know, the, the casualty figures, the fears of that day were just staggering. Um, and and I think that that's a really important part of remembering that day and, and remembering the trauma and the confusion of that day, because otherwise we sort of tell ourselves a story that is actually just not the way that America experienced it.
2: Yeah. The, one of the things I really appreciate your, about your book is, I actually think it uh, it provides an example of how chaotic things were, particularly on the ground, and how nobody really had just any kind of sense of, of in total, what was going on and, and ultimately what the damage would be. You know, whether it's a patrol cop in New York who has to focus on what he or she has to focus on, has no idea that there's something going on at the Pentagon or in Pennsylvania. Um, all right, the final two things, Garrett, I'd like to ask you about are one one of the things when you read the book that I, I appreciate you have it in there, but it is not easy to read even um, 18 years later. And those are the transcripts from the plane, particularly the cockpit. And so, you know, I, I, I want to just, as the author, I want to just sort of get your thought. I, I think obviously you're a historian as well. I think you understand that it has to be in there. But for you, is it the same? I mean, you read that transcript, and it just like every feeling just comes flooding back into you when 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 you read the final moments of the plane.
1: It, it, yes, and and they are heartbreaking to hear. Um, well, to, to read. So, not all of them have actually been released, um, but a lot of the air traffic control conversations have been, um, and it. They are so poignant, and you know when you ask um, when you asked sort of earlier about you know who, who didn't I get a chance to speak with for the book. I mean, part of the challenge of an oral history format is you are you know by definition almost entirely reliant on the people who survived the event, and so trying to figure out how to tell and capture the story of the people who did not survive the event, um, was something that I, I really spent a lot of time thinking about. And the, what we have are these voicemails and these 911 transcripts and these, uh, cockpit voice recorders. Um, and it's, uh, you know, they are still haunting and incredible, uh, to read or listen to. Um, and I, uh, uh, it, you know, I, I think that they are in some ways the, the most powerful material that comes out of that day.
2: Garrett, the last one for me, and I know I, I think you've been asked uh, a form of this question before, and you've probably written about it too. But in in writing about this now, both obviously in magazine form and now in the longer book form, so much of nine eleven has to do with happenstance and fate and luck, and I think as you wrote in the book the random sort of life decisions, these thousand life decisions that you make um, and how that could impact, you know, from the person who decides who oversleeps and misses an alarm and doesn't end up going to the World Trade Center until, you know, 10 a.m. that day, as opposed to nine or somebody who changes their flight. You know what I mean? Like there are literally uh, the example for 9-11, it's sort of infinite. And I wonder just in, how you process that in thinking about and in writing the book that you did, how much of all of this comes down to so much comes down to sort of luck, fate, and, and the randomness of life.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And and, uh, that to me was one of the themes of that day that just becomes so apparent when you're looking at it at the national level is the way that, you know, the these just utterly meaningless decisions that we make a thousand times a day actually end up having an outsized impact on that day. Um, Michael LaMonaco, the chef at windows on the world who um, would have normally been in his kitchen by, 8.30 8.30 that morning stopped that day instead in the basement of the World Trade Center and the shopping concourse to get a new pair of glasses. Um, and, and there's actually a, a very important sort of sports intersection uh, with 9-11. Um, you know, it, the the uh, the pace of New York sports actually ended up saving a lot of lives that morning. Um Roger Clemens uh, was supposed to have been pitching for his twentieth win at home with the Yankees on September 10th. And there are all of these people who had been expecting to go to that game. It ultimately was rained out um, that uh, uh, that you know moved their meetings, Later Tuesday morning because they were expecting to have been out at the baseball game late um, and you know people who shifted in 8 a.m meeting to 845 ended up surviving that day um, it, even when um, the uh, you know had had they not had tickets to the Yankees game the night before they they might have died um, and, and sort of similarly the New York Giants were playing. At, in, in Denver that night. Um, and uh, on, on the night of the 10th and you know being in Denver, the game went late on the west coast and they're sort of all of, or, um, uh, in, in Denver. And there are all of these stories of people who stayed up and watched the end of the game and so went in to work you know, 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later, an hour later than they would have otherwise and ended up missing the last elevators up in the World Trade Center and lived. Um, and, And it's just, it's incredible when you sort of stop and think about, you know, 18 years later, the 1 million decisions along those lines that each of us has made in our own lives that could have unlocked a different future or an alternate universe and, uh, that, that will, you know, never, never realize.
2: Yeah, that's well said. I mean, just again, like think of the, the people who made a certain decision and turned out not to be, uh, not to have lost their life. If they ended up having kids, they had kids, their kids did stuff. You can't even, it's so infinite. You can't even contemplate it. And then obviously in the reverse, the people whose lives were lost, how their families were changed, uh, that's where sort of the randomness of life is, uh, is something to process. Uh, Garrett Graff is the author of The Only Plane in the Sky in Oral History of, no-, <coughs> excuse me, in Oral History of 9-11. Um, it is, uh, last I checked, it was way up on Amazon. If not number one, it's certainly going to be a bestseller. It probably already is. And I can't recommend it enough. The same with the Politico article that he wrote. It's just, it's just fascinating and I think really, really important reading. Uh, Garrett, it's good of you to do this. This is not going to be again on the podcast sort of traditionally on your, um, on your book tour, but, uh, I wish you nothing but continued success and, um, and thanks for, thanks for your work, uh, all of these years. I, I really enjoy it. Thanks for coming on today in the sports media podcast.
1: Well, thanks for chatting with me.
2: Let's take a break from our conversation for a second to talk about ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process and Cafe Altura's COO. Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having a lot of trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants out so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all size. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com approach. That's ZipRecruiter.com APP. R O A C H ZipRecruiter.com slash approach ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, my thanks to Garrett Graff for a really interesting conversation. And now we turn to two of my colleagues at The Athletic, Kavitha Davidson and Anders Kelto, are the co hosts of The Lead, which is a new daily podcast from The Athletic and Wondery originating from Los Angeles. This is the first daily podcast for The Athletic, and it is the first to be published entirely outside the site's paywall. A very, very big deal for The Athletic, and I'm happy to welcome sleep-deprived Kavitha and Anders from Los Angeles. How are you guys?
0: Sleep-deprived is a pretty (laughs) good way to to put that. (laughs) But it's good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us.
2: All right. Yeah. All right. So you're welcome. So you literally, uh, as we're taping this, the first... Uh, episode is out and I think you just taped Episode two so Kavitha I'll start with you. I mean where is the chemistry right now between you and Anders? <laughs> I'm listening very closely <laughs> to this answer. Where is where is this right? You're, I mean, you're
0: putting me on the spot man.
2: Uh, yeah. Is it like Conan O'Brien and Andy Richter um, like where is it right now?
0: <laughs> well, I don't know who would be the comic relief in this relationship, so uh, uh, no, I think it's I think it's good Anders has so much experience and I'm so new to the audio space that You know, I think I bring the day to day sports journalism side of things and he brings the just really phenomenal audio storytelling side of things. And I think we're both going to learn a lot from each other in this process.
2: All right, Anders, I will I will ask a serious question. Let's put my serious journalism hat on here. If you are um, (laughs) if you're sort of making an elevator pitch for podcast listeners to listen to the lead, what is the lead?
3: The lead is a sports show that will appeal to both hardcore sports fans and much more casual fans. So everyone who, you know, watches shows like Pardon the Interruption and watches Sports Center every day and things like that, who is just really plugged into the world of sports, but also to people who are, again, more casual fans who just like really great stories and great storytelling, you know. People who listen to the Daily from the New York Times, or listen to NPR, and like sports, but maybe don't digest sports on a on, on a regular basis, because it's really all about the stories. Um, it's not about soundboy. It's not about sound bites. It's not about news. It's about great stories that just happen to be happening in the world of sports.
2: Kavitha, do you want? Hope that to, was uh, a
3: long, a fairly long elevator ride. <laughs>
2: I like that. That's a good pitch, Kavitha. Do you want to sort of uh, add your perspective on how you see this podcast?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with everything that Anders said, but I will add also as the hardcore sports fan, I there is there is really something for us and for you know anyone who just who cares about what's happening in the world of sports. But again, the stories are just so good, and it's one of those things like I I grew up listening. I grew up watching, you know, the sports reporters and HBO Real Sports and that kind of thing. And I I haven't heard a radio or podcast show that kind of reflects that same level of storytelling and that same kind of universal appeal. So, you know, as the person who has three fantasy teams and is constantly following box scores, um, there is something here for us. But it's just, you know, it's about discovering these broader issues through the world of sports. And it's not like a
3: hot take show. We're not we're not like delivering sound bites or, you know, snippets. What we're really trying to do is to kind of take a step back and to to take the 30,000-foot view of something that's happening in the world of sports right now, to maybe go back in time to explain how we got to the present so that you understand these stories in greater depth and you experience them almost the way you experience a story when you watch a documentary film, you know. We're trying to kind of paint a fuller picture of these Little snippets of news that you hear, uh, but might not fully understand the sort of background and context.
0: Right, it's a twenty-minute audio version of a long-form feature. <laughs> Kavitho, that's a good way to put it.
2: Yeah, like one that. of the th- one of the things that's going to be interesting about this podcast, much like the daily at the New York Times, is how do you balance the news of the day versus an interesting feature that your publication has done, or a trend piece, or something that's not specifically tied to that. Day. I know you guys have producers in addition to YouTube, but what's the, what's the thought process at this point in trying to figure out what works, given the fact that, you know, there really is sports news literally every single day, and you could feature something that's news of the day at the same time. Uh, that could be challenging during certain times of the year.
0: Yeah, I mean, literally every single day, literally every single minute. Um, you know, I think that's that's the challenge. That's the mix that we're trying to go for. I mean, there are so many stories that are, for lack of a better word, evergreen, but are undertold. And I think we're trying to tell those stories. At the same time, we want to be relevant and we we don't want to be reactionary, but we want to cover what's happening in the world of sports in a smart um, in a smart, long view way. So, for example, um, you know, we just taped an episode about Antonio Brown, obviously in the news um, and will continue to be in the news for many, many reasons and and for the near future. But, you know, we didn't just want to do a reaction piece about that. We didn't want to say, you know, Antonio Brown is accused of sexual assault. Um, where, you know, what? What's the reaction here? What did the Patriots know and when did they know it? That kind of thing. No, like we we wanna take a long, a long view here. Um so it might take a day or two to put an episode like that together. Um, but you know, that gives us more space and more time to actually, you know, have a meaningful discussion about some of these issues.
3: And with that particular story, the framing that we chose to go with was to look at the NFL's policy around situations like this when a player has been accused of a violent crime if we if we look if we go back in time we start like before the ray rice incident and then we look at how things changed through the ray rice incident and how the nfl's policy and how the nfl's policy has shifted and then we arrive at the present and so we better understand uh, why the nfl is doing what it's doing and what's likely to come of the antonio brown case
2: Anders, one of the important things, as you know, are the initial episodes when a podcast first runs. You know, you want to hook people as quickly as you can. That's why the serialized podcasts that have been so successful um, have been successful. They're usually able to get people from episode one. When thinking about, like, your first week of shows, your first two weeks of shows, what kind of stories did you think would most pop with an audience?
3: Yeah, well, we wanted to have a nice variety of stories to kind of show the breadth of reporting that we're going to do on this show. So our very first episode is about the Ram Saints rematch that happened yesterday um, or that happened on Sunday of this week um, here in Los Angeles. So we kind of revisited, you know, last year's infamous NOLA no call and looked at all the aftermath. Um, in New Orleans, in the wake of that, uh, what they consider, a, I think, a, a city tragedy um, and kind of built to the present and looked at what happened when the teams met again yesterday, which, as many of the listeners will know, was another uh, unfortunate call that did not go the Saints way.
0: Yeah, if Saints fans have a chip on their shoulder, that certainly didn't get better yeah. after Sunday's game. <laughs> um,
3: and so, you know, that was kind of a, a fun football story. Um or maybe not fun for Saints fans, but, you know, that was a a, a football story. Then, you know, our second episode is about Antonio Brown, and we're really taking a kind of critical look at how the NFL handles uh, incidents of violent crimes towards women. Um, Later in the week, we have um, an evergreen feature that is about the Ice Bucket Challenge. It's a five-year retrospective looking at the surprising connection between the ALS ice bucket challenge, which everyone will remember, uh, and sports, um, little known fact, it really originated, um, with a number of different athletes and sports teams. And that is a big part of what pro- propelled it forward. Um, we have a, a story coming up about mental health in college football players. Um, and our plan at the end of the week is to do a kind of a uh, fun recap of some of the big stories of the week and a preview for to the weekend. So it's a mix, as you can tell, of kind of uh, heavy hitting, more serious journalism, and then some lighter, kind of more fun, entertaining pieces. And we want to have that blend throughout the show.
2: Kavitha, um, the Athletic, as you know, has like a, a whole new uh, flotilla of uh, UK soccer writers, and so are they? Will they be part of the lead? Or is this going to only be focused on uh, U.S. centric sports?
0: Well, no. I mean, we're we're really trying to go above and beyond what I think normal. Uh, what the usual coverage points of, of media of sports media outlets tend to be, and you know, I have sitting right next to me um, a former soccer star himself. So, in in Anders, so we will definitely be covering um, some soccer. We are going to make it a point. I think anyone who's followed my career knows um, that uh, covering women's sports is extremely important, and you know, something that. Um I've advocated for throughout my career, so we are we're making it a point to tell those stories that are under that are frankly undertold but are no less compelling. um and that yeah, and that's 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 our plan going forward.
2: All right, a couple more here, Andres, how will you judge success how or maybe more importantly, what have the athletic managers told you that success will be here?
3: <laughs> well, you know, of course, performance, how many downloads, how high we get in the charts, um, that matters a great deal. Um I think for me as a journalist I I think the ability to tell stories that aren't being told other places or to to report on sports in a way that feels new and different. I mean we're really trying to kind of capture the magic of audio storytelling to to take people places, to expand their minds, to dive into stories in a kind of immersive way. Um so it's both, uh, you know, the, the sort of n- numerical definition of success, but also the journalistic or even artistic definition.
2: Kavitha, um, the podcast market in sports is, um, I don't know I sort of phrase it. I mean, there is a ton out there. Um, it's broken down by niche, by sport. In terms of this kind of podcast, uh, ESPN has announced that they're going to do something Similar, you know, the Ringer has sort of now has a daily podcast. So it's a little bit different than this one. Um, so while there, while this is certainly, I think, unique to the space, you guys are competing against so many other podcasts that, in essence, will also touch on some of the content that you hit. And I wonder, just in terms of sort of the the group of people who are putting this together, how much did you look at the market? in terms of what's out there and then to try to figure out in what is a, you know, massively crowded space, how to make something how to make something unique, how to how to get an audience to come to you given that maybe at this point, you know, they already subscribe to 5, 6, 10 podcasts a day.
0: You're absolutely right. It's a very it's a very crowded space and I think I I don't think I'm giving away trade secrets to say that obviously. We're looking at what other people are doing, and you know, I'm a former ESPN employee, uh, ESPN writer, and I have tremendous respect for um, many, many of the of, of my former colleagues there, and you know what their capacity is um, to to contribute to the space. That being said, I think we really are filling a gap here. There, there really isn't a show like this, um, and I think just the quality of the producers that we have and the quality of the storytelling that we're aiming to do, um, it really is kind of unmatched, at least from what I've seen so far. And and I think that's the hope, is to do something that, you know, sports, are, sports can and should be so universal that we want to tell those stories and, and reach people beyond just, you know, a very niche set of hardcore sports fans That being said, as a hardcore sports fan, you know, I want to tell a story that I would want to listen to as well. Um, And I I think that, you know, there's there should be something for everyone along the spectrum of um, of sports interest. And there really isn't this kind of show yet. And hopefully we do a good enough job of filling that gap that we don't have to worry about that gap existing anymore.
3: And I would add that as saturated as the sports podcast market is, the, most sports podcasts kind of follow the same formula or the same format. It's usually, you know, two people. Talking in a room just kind of talking through the issues of the day or the game last night And it's typically very like inside baseball or inside football You know, it's usually sports specific or team or city specific and it can be Alienating to people who aren't in that group and who don't already follow that team or that sport really closely So what we're trying to do is create a show that's accessible to anyone again, even the more casual fans who? Don't have time to read about sports all the time or to follow sports super closely. We want to make our storytelling accessible to that more general sports audience, while again giving the more hardcore fans a reason to listen, to, a reason to listen as well.
0: Yeah, and with all due respect to uh, people in the industry, we're not we're not embracing debate.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, trust me. When it comes to inside baseball, I mean this show has a master's degree in it, so I hear you.
0: I mean, also, you know, media in general. Media in general, sports media especially, but media in general, we tend to be so insular and we assume that the general audience or the general population knows what we know is interested in what we're interested in. And that's just not the case. You know, there's so much been said about if you only followed the news on Twitter, you have a very limited sense of what of what everybody actually is interested in. And I think that we're trying to go beyond those barriers and that insularity to really become something universal
2: one of the uh here's sort of the last part i want to get to you know not to come off so like uh you know company flag waving although quite frankly this segment is already (laughs) company flag waving so i'm already down that (laughs) i'm already down that river at this point but one of the things that or in my opinion one of the assets that the athletic has for a podcast like this is that while the you know the 300 plus riders that are on staff Some have television experience, you know, like the Ken Rosenthal's and the Jason Starks. Most don't, though. I mean, that's just the reality. But most of them are talkers, or at least whether they've had radio experience or just at a very base level, they interview people every day. And so it strikes me that, you know, one of the reasons, at least in terms of sort of, um, if you think about people in terms of sort of assets, The Athletic really has a great asset base for you guys to be able to use because I think... There's almost nobody who's sort of a front facing or front writer on staff who would not be an interesting voice for your show, whether it's like somebody reporting on a really interesting Clemson football story or, you know, one of the writers in the UK who's got something interesting there. In your initial, and either of you guys can take this, but have you found initially that the people on staff are excited about being part of this? Because my sense is that they would be, because I think most writers have an innate. Um, comfort when it comes to audio, certainly much more than television.
0: Oh, no question. And frankly, you know, you get you get two sports writers in a room, you get me on on the phone with someone else and we can pretty much geek out about anything that they've been covering for like hours, which isn't always the best for uh, for my producers who are working on cutting the tape. But um, no, I mean, we've we've had tremendous excitement about this. And like you said, you know, writers, you know, we we get so in the weeds and so embedded into a story that we're covering or a beat that we're covering that we just want to tell people about it. We just want, you know, writers, we we want everyone to be as excited about this thing that we've devoted weeks and months to covering as as we are. And And it's been great to see that enthusiasm play out
3: and the original conceit of the show was let that look the athletic has as you said 300 plus reporters all over the country in canada now into the uk and these are reporters that are embedded in cities and teams that have this insider perspective that has that have this historical knowledge of the teams that they cover and are just very connected and well-informed and so the idea is to tap into that network of reporters that has unique access uh, and that also has just really great storytelling abilities i mean this is sort of what the athletic prides itself on is storytelling not so much breaking news but telling stories telling human stories telling interesting sports stories they they have time to research and write and so we're just Trying to harness that and to, uh, to to find stories that the reporters are generating and to, to figure out a way to, to adapt those to audio and to really bring them to life.
2: All right. Listen, it is my uh, quick snapshot judgment. You guys have some nice chemistry going. You know, this may be successful. And it better, it better <laughs> well, be you. because we all need to have jobs. This is the new <laughs> frontier. There's so much
3: pressure on it you. It could Kavit, just be the Anders. sleep deprivation. What's that? No,
2: it's, this is it. This, there is so much pressure on you. You're the new frontier at the athletic. You must succeed <laughs> for all of us. That's my that's my uh well, Nick Sa- that's my Nick Saban pitch talk. How'd, how'd it go? <laughs> you guys feel feel ready to take on the world? All right. Is there anything else you want to add before I let you go from this podcast?
3: Well, I would just say that we do, you know, we we do take that responsibility seriously, that we are excited about this. We're working extremely hard. Um, and we all, you know, from us to the producers to the editorial producer, to the sound designers, to um, all the folks at Wondery. I mean, this is a real team effort. We had a group of 10 people here last night until 2 in the morning, uh, finishing up the first episode, executing a marketing strategy. It takes a village to make a podcast.
0: Yeah, and I'll I'll add as as the... uh as the the plant, shall we say, from the athletic. Um, you know, I joined as a sports business writer in May and just I've I'd been an athletic subscriber for at least a year before that. And I truly believe in the journalistic mission. Um that sounds like a company line, but I promise it's not. Um and I I, I you know, I've really I've really been excited to take the the types of storytelling the type of journalism that we have on the written front and try and bring it to this completely new space for me um but hopefully a space that can reach even more even more people and even more broadly
2: listen we all work for the athletic so you have to take that for what it is <laughs> um so I, and i think people who listen to this podcast know you know I, I try to be honest with them when it comes to something as stupid as like you know embrace debate or more serious right. topics i will say this honestly no bullshit to the audience here i listened to the lead this morning and i was like holy shit this is fucking really good like i was really psyched to be part of the athletic because this like sounds like the highest kind of like audio podcast um that i've heard so kudos to your pro- i'm not sure how good you two are but kudos to your producers um <laughs> uh, because it really sounds awesome so yeah so congratulations no, they're and, they're uh,
0: phenomenal and Everything in there, like you heard, some original like music compositions too. Like, yeah, there's really like, good. The team here is ridiculous. It's it's pretty stacked.
2: Yeah, the edit, the 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 quality of the edit on that podcast was super high. So um, so that, that 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 gets me very excited for heading forward. All right, Kavitha Davidson and Andres Calto, they're the co-hosts of the lead. That's a new daily podcast from the Athletic and Wondery, um, uh, coming out every day. Go to Apple Podcasts um and find the lead and subscribe to it obviously it would help if you leave a five-star review and a nice comment that that is basically how the algorithm sort of gets played when it comes to (laughs) apple podcasts it'll certainly make kavitha and andre's bosses very happy as well i'm wishing you guys the best of luck but congrats on a great first episode and uh and thanks for joining me today on what will soon be the much smaller than yours sports media podcast (laughs) (laughs)
3: well thank you so much this is great thanks richard it was a lot of fun all
2: right let's take a break from our conversation stop what you're doing and look down at your left wrist because our friends at mvmt watches have got exactly what you're missing mvmt has you covered with tons of quality clean and all-around good-looking watches and accessories that we can actually afford and order right from our couch do your wrist and wild a favor Go check out their minimalist designs. We love minimalism. Minimalist designs that you can have with no risk because they offer free shipping and returns. With over 2 million watches sold worldwide, MVMT has solidified themselves as one of the fastest growing brands out there. Listen, pick a style or design that you personally like and would wear and chat about it. If you need more details, please let us know. uh, I've got some friends who are big fans of the new Odyssey collection, they love how it's super clean and minimal, but also has a unique hexagonal shape. They also have a ton of sunglasses and offer interchangeable watch straps, so you've never run out of options for just a new look. MVMT watches start at just 95 bucks. Just $95. bucks. you are guaranteed to find something you love that won't break your bank. If you need a watch, again, MVMT. These guys are truly a ground-up entrepreneurial success story. They understand living on a tight budget because they lived it too, and that's why they wanted to make a quality product and quality products that are accessible to everyone. They've sold over 2 million watches across more than 160 countries, and their collections are always expanding for you. Now, this is important. You can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to MVMT.com slash Deitch. That's MVMT.com slash Deitch, D-E-I-T-S-E-H. And you can see why MVMT keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Again, go to MVMT.com slash Deitch. Join the movement, MVMT. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Garrett Graff and Kavitha Davidson and Anders Kelto for their time and really interesting thoughts. Um, If you like this kind of uh, conversation, please go to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page. Uh, Give us a five-star review. Give us a nice review. That is how this sticks around with Cadence 13. Uh, The last couple episodes include... uh, Monday Night Football Analyst Booger McFarland, a long conversation with him. Gus Johnson of Fox Sports calling college football and why he wants to get back into the NBA. Uh, one of the regulars, John O'Rand, and I talked about NFL ratings and what we think and where we think that might go. And then just go down the list of all the previous guests we've had. I think, uh, I think you'll enjoy the content. All right, thanks as always for, to Patrick for uh, producing this podcast. Uh, I'm actually impressed by myself uh, with a massive cold getting through it. Uh, Thanks to everybody at uh, Cadence 13, as always, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Thanks again, everybody. This is the Sports Media Podcast.